We about to Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Black Baseball Mixtape, and this is Mixtape Talk, and we are about to make history, I believe. I believe we're about to make history, because this is the first time on the Black Baseball Black Baseball Mixtape that we have two white dudes as our guests. <laughs> uh, I'm really, really excited about this, and it is so awesome. I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, Jay Caldwell and uh, my buddy Greg Kreindler is here. They are collaborating on an amazing, amazing piece of art. I mean, it's it's a book, but it's an amazing piece of art called Black Baseball and Living Color. It will be released in December. It is in pre-order right now, but it is a massive, a massive amount of work and awesomeness dedicated to Negro League Baseball and Negro League Baseball history. And it is fitting that I have both Jay and Greg on the show. Welcome to the Black Baseball Mixtape. Thank you for having us. Yeah, great to see you, Mark. Great to see you, Greg. Great to see you. Jay, I'm going to start with you because okay. I, I know that this project uh, and doing a little bit of my research, I know that the book project kind of was birthed out of what was a exhibit, a Negro League baseball exhibit that was on display for the centennial. Um, I know Greg has been working on it for a long time uh, in regards to the portraits and the, and the color studies. But Jay, how did this project come together for you and for everybody involved? Well, um, I think uh, kind of a short answer for the uh, uh, the portraits is um, I got inspired by my children to uh, start a project where I could bring some aspect of baseball that was only seen in black and white into color. And through a mutual friend, uh, Monty Sheldon, I got introduced to Craig and started discussing it with him. And I think over four years, you know, 240 portraits later, <laughs> we had we were ready for the exhibit at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And that occurred in 1920. And then again, uh, this year, um, uh, beginning in May. And um, just so it's uh, 2020, right? Uh, 2020. <laughs> All right. 1920 Sorry. is the uh, start of, of some important, <laughs> it's an important date in Negro League history, but in yeah. 2020, <laughs> as the centennial and that's when it started, right? That's correct. And then um, I did uh, sometime in, I think it was May or June, um, a book got released by Sabre on the Chicago American Giants. Mm. And they had requested that they could use certain of Greg's uh, paintings for the uh, book. And I gave him permission. And in the course of doing that, uh, started talking to the main editor, uh, Bill Nolan, and um, said, you know, why don't we, uh, rather than just doing this piecemeal, I'm going to do a book uh, with uh, all of Greg's uh, Negro Leagues paintings. And that started in, as I recall, early July. And here we are uh, in November, and it's wow. at the printers trying to get it printed. And Jay, let's be clear, because this is a very ambitious project for for you. You you are you're not an author in that sense. So this is your first book, correct? This is my first book. That's correct. So so where where did I mean? Obviously, you've been involved in the project, and you see uh, Saber for for those that don't know, that's the uh, Society of American Baseball Research, correct? Am I saying that correct. correctly? Mm -hmm. um, they they're they're producing a book. Uh, but what 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 convinced you that? Hey, it's time for for me to to see if I can put together a whole book on on all of uh, Greg's work, and 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 we'll talk about Greg's work in in a second. 
Okay. Well, it was an idea that's always been percolating in my mind. And I just felt the time was right. Um, I wanted to, uh, I was kind of inspired by this uh, Chicago Americans uh, Giants book and uh, recruited uh, a few authors from Sabre to help me out with the book. And there are 12 chapters and I think I wrote uh, four of them and uh, the others, uh, you know, put put together the other eight. That's fantastic. Uh, Greg, when I believe we talked about a year and a half, two years ago or so, when we maybe earlier than that, actually. But when we talked, I remember it was like it was crunch time. And it was you were <laughs> you were telling me about kind of the final days of the portrait project because I'd gotten wind of the portrait project and I was fascinated with it. Uh, for those not familiar, t- tell the world and, and people what exactly the Negro League portrait project was for you and like how you were able to put together so many color studies of Negro League players that, just to be frank, a lot of people just aren't familiar with, never saw a picture of, and, and didn't know anything about. Yeah, well, I mean, it to say that it was kind of like, you know, the highlight of 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 my career, I guess you would call it, so far. I mean, that's kind of an understatement because, you know, I, I as as kind of like a a historian or a visual historian, you know, I try to kind of pride myself on on knowing a lot about baseball, or at least knowing a lot of, you know, weird, you know, esoteric stuff uh, about how uniforms looked and stadiums looked and players looked. But when it came to the Negro Leagues, I knew very little. Uh, I mean, you know, I was kind of exposed to that through Ken Burns documentary, you know, I, I'd see like Spike Lee wearing, you know, a Monarchs jersey. And I'm like, what, what is that? Um, but yeah, it was just it was just amazing opportunity. You know, when I met when I met Jay, he you know kind of approached me with just kind of a an idea that blossomed into this mammoth project, and the opportunity to kind of you know learn about these players to kind of live with them uh, in a way. It was just something that I I never kind of expected to be able to do. Uh, you know, it was basically through Jay, through a lot of uh, memorabilia collectors, through historians, through kind of my own research that I was able to come up with uh, the photography uh, to base the uh, the portraits on. But in addition to that, there was also the uniforms and and trying to kind of get. Uh, not only the look of those right, but, you know, the colors right, which is kind of what I strive for. I know, you know, we talked about historical mm-hmm. accuracy or whatever the last time that we chatted. Sure. And, uh, you know, even now it's it's kind of like I can I can look at these portraits and and still kind of, uh, you know, question whether I got a little detail right here, right there. And unfortunately, uh, unlike uh, unlike the the white leagues, there's very little information out there uh about that stuff i mean you know mark oaken and and the people at uh, the hall of fame have this great database of of you know baseball uniforms back to 1900 and then there's another fellow named craig brown who goes even further back to the 1800s and it's all from the white leagues and we don't have anything like that for the negro leagues so in a way this was kind of like an opportunity to uh 
tap into that a little, not necessarily make the same kind of database, but uh, try to try to visualize that history uh, as best as we could. How, how many color studies were was it when you finished and, and how long did it take? Uh, it was by the end, Jay, what it was 238, 239, 239. Wow. Yeah. Two, wow. 239, five by seven portraits. Jay, you, we chatted first, was it 2015 or 16? I, I don't remember. I think it was 16. Maybe 16. Okay. Wow. So 2016. Uh, so yeah, four years. I mean, I, I was literally finishing up the last few portraits uh, <laughs> I remember in, that part. at the beginning of January of 2020. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the show was going to open like a month and change later. So it took a yeah, while. He was, he, he was doing like one a week on average. Right. And well, not to mention, and I remember at the time we talked, it was you were doing this, but this was also you had like a lot of stuff. You had like the backlog of just other kind of commissions and pieces of work that you had to do was also uh, you know, kind of in the back burner, you said most most uh, I guess um, patrons understood. That was like, hey, I'm working on this massive thing. We'll have to put put a delay on certain things, but that's phenomenal. Two hundred and thirty nine and about four years. That's yeah. that's amazing, amazing. And since the exhibit, let, let because the the book that that is going to be released in December is is so exciting, and that and that's one thing. But we were just kind of chit-chatting off the air about all of the other there's so many insulary kind of addendum type things that have come since the exhibit since you guys have worked together to make the exhibit happen um that has to be kind of mind-blowing and phenomenal on itself correct yeah i mean i <laughs> i've just been i've been blown away that uh, it's been able to have the kind of reach that it has uh, that, you know, so many people have been picking up on this stuff, you know, whether it's, whether it's through the museum show or the baseball cards or stuff they see online. And it's just kind of, I think it's promoting interest in, in those leagues and, and those players, which is really, I mean, that's all I want, you know, uh, I know Jay kind of probably feels similarly, um, but yeah, he he tells uh, he he tells his own story, I suppose. <laughs> well, it, it has led to so many things. One thing we were chatting about earlier was uh, the Negro League Celebration beer that mm -hmm. was uh, brewed by Maine and Mill Brewing Company. Um, that is something I don't think had ever been done before. Not with you know specific players on the cans, as opposed to just a generic. Uh, uh, player representation. Mm -hmm. um, so that was one thing. We're currently working, uh, nothing finalized yet, but uh, currently working with uh, uh, Hinchliffe Stadium to uh, help them open their museum there. Hinchliffe being one of five yeah. uh, New York League's parks that's still in existence. Absolutely. Um, it's the oldest, I believe, right? That's What's that? It's the oldest that's still in existence, right? Or it was. Did it? I don't know if they stopped. Um, I think the Birmingham uh, Black Baron Stadium is early, uh, okay. early uh, uh, okay. older, but um, it's 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 up there. <laughs> it's and older than you. So hopefully they'll open next year, and hopefully we'll be a part of that. That's awesome. And I know there's at least uh, two um, uh, documentaries that uh, we're getting involved in that uh, hopefully we'll release next year. And um, Craig's uh, 
portraits will be part of that and I won't be seen. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jay, Jay, let me ask this and before we go even further in details of the book, but is it fair to say that a lot of this um, Negro League baseball history is kind of, it's is it fair to say it's kind of having a moment? And I say that because we talked about the centennial. Unfortunately, a lot of that was marred by the pandemic um, at the time. But um, the the leadership of bon- Bob Kendricks over at the museum has been phenomenal. Um, I have seen in the last, I would say, two to three to four years, more recognition, more acknowledgement, even with Major League Baseball acknowledging statistics of the Negro Leagues as as major leagues. Uh, the Centennial Celebration, uh, all of the things that you, you guys are working on with big exhibits. Is it fair to say that uh, I know as a as a hat collector and, and I've seen more uh, Negro League releases and products that uh, have just been really, really awesome. Is it fair to say this is a special time for kind of Negro League historians? I think it really is. I think there was a core group of historians who were very dedicated and who brought a lot of knowledge, but um, it never really got the play that it did until um, uh, 2020 with the um, centennial. And um, I think two things that, you know, uh, and some of this is self-serving, two things that really took uh, set it off was the card set that we did with Greg's artwork. Mm-hmm. Um, that came at a time also with the pandemic where everybody was trapped at home and looking for things to do and, as you probably know, baseball cards uh, exploded. Had an explosion. Value and collection. And we hit the timing perfectly uh, for mm-hmm. that. And then the second one that um, really accelerated was Major League Baseball recognition of the Negro Leagues as uh, uh, Major Leagues. And people started wanting to know, well, who are these guys? Mm-hmm. And you can find um, old card sets Um, that are generally black and white and kind of crude drawings. And some, um, like, say, uh, Dick Perez's artwork, which is phenomenal, his Hall of Fame series, which had uh, the uh, players in the Hall of Fame at that point um, in color and very well done. Um, But there was nothing of the scope of what uh, uh, Greg had created. And so that helped visualize a lot of this and helped uh, people understand the words that were being written. I, I think you're exactly right. I think indeed. So, I mean, and, and since then, there's just been, I believe, like I said, an acceleration of just really cool stuff uh, mm-hmm. that is Negro League related that, that's happened. I, I'm locked into like podcasts now that are talking, like the Black Diamonds podcast is talking right. about Negro League history all the time. And it's, and it's such interesting stuff. And, and, and so... One thing I wanted to ask, there's several things I want to ask about the book, because it, it is really, really amazing. But you decided, Jay, to kind of make certain chapters about, I want to say it was five Negro League players. That um, is correct. And, mm-hmm. and and we know, you know Satchel Page is a, is a chapter. I believe you wrote the Satchel Page chapter. Uh, Jack, Jackie Robinson, Josh Gibson, Cool Papa Bell. Tell me a little bit about how you decided of all of the all of the players that have just amazing, I mean, amazing stories when it comes to the Negro Leagues and what they had to go through. How did you settle on on the five that you settled on and and, and kind of went about putting those in the book, telling those stories in the book? 
Well, this was actually uh, part of a grand scheme, including with the uh, celebration, because uh, Craig created multiple images of those players. And the idea behind it was that Page, Gibson, and Bell represented three aspects of Negro League Baseball in uh, pitching power and speed mm. that were just, they were synonymous with. And it made a good story just for how the game developed with the Negro Leagues. You couldn't ignore Rube Foster, the founder of the Negro National League. Mm -hmm. He did more to um, get the uh, Negro Leagues on an organiza uh, organizational basis than anyone else. He was a great player. And he actually tried to integrate baseball several times before founding the Negro uh, National League. Um, so he was just a story all by himself and you know deserved his own chapter. And then, of course, Jackie Robinson, who broke the color barrier, spent very little time in um, the Negro Leagues, you know, only part of one season, I think something like 35 games that we have records of. Um, but he was the transition to integrating baseball. And so we spent a lot of time uh, with him and actually um, have portraits of him, not only with uh, baseball, but with football, um, basketball, um, going back to when he was like 10 years old. <laughs> so uh, trying to have a kind of a life history for uh, Jackie Robinson. That's fantastic. That's and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you wrote some of the chapters. You wrote, uh, I know the Satchel Page chapter, uh, but it was also an effort for you to collect, uh, I guess, different authors and, and, and editors and make this thing happen. Tell me a little bit about the, the idea about well, making it a true collaboration. Yeah, well, um, I, I relied heavily on Bill Nolan, the editor, who uh, uh, oversaw the, the editing process. But yes, I contacted the num a number of people, asked if they were in, and everybody was enthusiastic about doing it. I probably could have asked another 20 people and had 20 more yeses. Um, but um, the people who did it, we just divided up the chapters after, um, you know, based on their own interests and um, uh, tried to get, uh, I think my main role in after just assigning people chapters was trying to give them a sense of what we wanted to accomplish so that there was not as much overlap as you might think there would be when you bring other people in it, mm -hmm. especially given how quickly it happened. Um, but, you know, we got the people involved and kind of uh, told them what we were trying to highlight and uh, how we were trying to present their story. And then they put it in their own words. And, um, it, it, you know, as you read the book, you'll find that there are different takes on various uh, subjects. But I think that adds to the diversity of uh, uh, what the story we're trying to tell, because it is opinion based a lot of it, and uh, I think it comes across very well. And it's interesting that you say kind of difference of opinions. I think you have a, a chapter or an intro in the book that's kind of like myth. <laughs> that's I think it's called like myth uh, versus kind of what when doing this research. There's so many legends, and 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 the legends sometimes. Um, if if you tell a legend long enough, sometimes most people believe it to be true. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what are some of the things that you found in your research that was, you know, kind of widely misunderstood about the Negro Leagues? Okay, well, part of it um, has to do with just the players themselves and the legends around the players. Um, 
And, I'll, you know, the two most popular um, legends, I think, are about Satchel Paige, who I consider the greatest pitcher who ever lived. Um, and you, you will see people, I think, sincerely saying, well, he won 2,500 games, you know, major league equivalent games. Well, he didn't. Um, mm. uh, most of the games, he may have pitched uh, that many, and maybe he actually theoretically theoretically won that many, but most of his games, because he pitched every day were, if they weren't in the Negro leagues, they were like three inning exhibitions, mm -hmm. which wouldn't qualify for a win. He might've left the game with the lead intact, but somebody else, you know, uh, pitched the rest of the game. Another example is very common is um, Josh Gibson, who, you know, either had 800 home runs or 960 home runs in a very short uh, career. It um, he couldn't possibly have hit that many, and in the Negro leagues, he has fewer than 200 home runs. But that doesn't take away from the fact that he was an incredibly powerful hitter and the leading slugger of the Negro leagues, um, and would have been a, a tremendous star in uh, uh, the major leagues if he had been allowed to play. Um, but I, what my emphasis is on is trying to take away some of the myths and look at them as real people. And so that you see how great they were as real people, they don't need the legends anymore. There was a time that they did, but I don't think they do anymore. I think one of my favorite, uh, I guess, I don't know if it's a story and I don't know how exactly how I came across the story, but it was um, the fact that Jackie Robinson was a Kansas city monarch. And Kansas City was owned by, correct me if I'm wrong, is it J.R. Wilkins or J.L. Wilkins? Uh, J.L. Wilkinson. J.L. Wilkinson, who happened to be one of the white owners. There were white owners in the Negro League, and mm -hmm. he he was the a white owner of the Kansas City Monarchs. So when Branch Rickey basically steals Jackie Robinson uh, from the Monarchs to through the Dodgers, kind of over the cover of night, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things that was so fascinating to me was JL really couldn't put up a, a, a huge fight because at the time, uh, the, you know, they were at, at this time, the black press, black, uh, you know, black fandom, black media was like, somebody has somebody has to come. Somebody has to, to break this thing. And so, you know, the pull was for integration in the league and, and have a player do it. Um, and so JL, JL basically couldn't stand in the way of brain tricky and couldn't get compensation. Uh, and it, I just I just found that because he was a white guy, and, and that was if it, it had it been a black, it had it been uh, a Manly or, or or someone else, at least compensation would have been on the table. But I remember the idea that uh, JL could not put up a fight, could not really say anything, could not take act because he would be viewed as the white guy stopping progress in all of baseball. That was just mm -hmm. a fascinating, fascinating story that I never thought of. Yeah, well, it, JL uh, was, uh, I think, willing to do it. His partner and co-owner of the Monarchs, Thomas Baird, was less willing to do it, but uh, <laughs> came around. Um, and this is one of those dichotomies of um, uh, the unfortunate uh, uh, segregation mm -hmm. of, you know, Branch Rickey, who obviously, you know, deserves accolades for bringing Jackie Robinson in, also considered the Negro Leagues, as he said, something of a criminal enterprise, which sure. is why he wouldn't have uh, he wouldn't compensate him. 
Um, Effa Manley, who you mentioned, uh, was strident about uh, getting compensated for her players. Right. And uh, when Larry Bowie left Eagles. the Newark Eagles for yep. uh, Cleveland, um, Bill Veek uh, did, uh, or Bill Veck uh, did um, compensate yep. uh, Effa. So, um, you know, it, it's one of those, you know, you're a good guy and a bad guy at the same time. <laughs> and, and, you let, let um, history judge. Yeah. Well, I, I think there was a good uh, – I, I think those rumors were was a good chance that it wouldn't have been Jackie Robinson had it been because it was Monty Irvin and Larry Doby were over on the uh, – on the and, and the word was Monty Irvin was probably the best player in the leagues at the time. He yeah. was, and one of my favorite quotes, and it's unfortunate, is he was, the, he was selected or he was the favorite of the players and the owners to integrate um, the major leagues. But as he said, he he entered World War II as a 400 hitter and left as a 300 hitter. Right, right. And um, so you know the delay in the uh, his period in the, of service in the, uh, World War II and the diminishment of skills uh, affected that. Mm-hmm. Greg, you you were learning a lot as you were doing uh, all of all of these portraits. You were learning a lot about the background uh, of the players and the stories that were involved. Uh, what, what's one, what, is there a story that stands out for you as like the most just kind of obscure, weird, like I need to learn more about this person? Oh man. I mean, there are a lot. It, it's hard to, it's hard to pick one. Uh, they're like, <laughs> even some of them are kind of like, you know, for a casual researcher, if you're just kind of looking up some of these guys uh, on Wikipedia, you can, you can learn about them. But like uh, someone like, uh oh god like ghost marcel you know having having his nose bitten off um dave brown murdering someone uh just like insane stuff that it's in a way like it kind of adds to stuff like that adds to the flavor in a way of the painting like in my head at least but it's still kind of my goal to you know depict those men and women kind of as honestly as possible and that i think that's kind of why jay and i work uh really well together i mean aside from the fact that you know we both have very similar senses of humor uh <laughs> but you know the fact that he kind of want to take he wants to take the myth out of it and and present you know the facts i guess or or as many of the facts as we know and that's kind of what i strive to do too uh but i yeah there were just there were so many odd and also you know really tragic uh colorful stories it's hard to kind of pick one as being the best but uh i don't know maybe maybe ghost marcel having his nose bitten off it's it's gotta be i I don't i I don't know the story how do do you get his nose bitten off oh jay you tell this better than i do (laughs) well you know i actually just wrote a blog about uh uh, Ghost Marcel on my uh, uh, book website, uh, baseballartllc.com. Mm-hmm. But the short version of the story is uh, Marcel was a, um, uh, a tremendous player, um, but he was also a heavy drinker and had a hair trigger temp- uh, temper and very violent. And in a card game with... Uh, 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 Frank Warfield, he got into an argument over a gambling debt. Five dollars, apparently, is what the amount of the money at dispute was. And 
he pulled a knife on um, uh, Warfield. Um, uh, Warfield, and he grappled, roll around, roll around, and Warfield bit off a part of his nose. Oh, geez. And at oh, the end geez. of the day, Warfield ended up in jail, and uh, Marcel ended up in the hospital. Oh. But that put an, um, along with the heavy drinking, put an end to Marcel's career because Marcel was a, a very handsome man. Uh, he would have been a movie star and then, you know, oh, another wow. but um, he just couldn't stand the uh, abuse and shame of uh, the uh, heckling that uh, went on with uh, having to wear a patch on his nose. That's that's insane. That's yeah. Insane. And I we looked uh, the two of us looked and I don't think that we could find uh, ever find any photographic, you know, evidence of him with the eye patch on his nose uh i'm not saying that it didn't happen because it obviously did but you know perhaps it's one of those things where he just did not want to be seen or photographed or or whatever uh or it's been lost to time but it, it kind of like adds to that mystique of that crazy story so, no so this isn't baseball related but it's just recent and i had to uh so uh, yeah i took to twitter the other day because have you guys seen the commercial there's a mike tyson evander holyfield commercial Oh. Where they're selling like, like ears, they're they're sitting together. They're selling ears, and I think it's like an edible product, whether it's a uh, <laughs> like a gummy ear or something. And and literally, I'm I'm watching this, and I take to Twitter, and I'm like, freak! I was like, is anybody else uncomfortable with this? Like, <laughs> like I don't know what a Vader Holyfield situation is, but he's it's got to be down bad to do a commercial with Mike Tyson, and they're selling ears. And it's like it's insane. It's in, but uh, hearing that story, uh, definitely, definitely reminds me of uh, of of that. And Jay, itself. <laughs> I've got to ask because you have a chapter in the book that's dedicated to the uh, Latin Winter Leagues, mm-hmm. and if there is an aspect of black baseball and kind of Negro League baseball around that time that I'm probably least familiar with, I I know that black players were able to go to you know. Uh, go out of the country, go go to different places and play. Um, but but what did, tell us a little bit about that chapter, how it came about, because it was such a big part of Negro League history, especially the early years. And I and I and I, like I said, I don't think a lot of people are familiar with the Latin Winter Leagues as much. Well, the Latin Winter Leagues uh, did several things. Um, it allowed the Negro Leagues uh, players, the American players, to play year round, um, which boosted their income. Got them uh, uh, developed, helped develop their skills. Um, they made friendships with uh, Cuban and Dominican players who then became to the U.S. Um, it really helped the development of the Negro Leagues as well as the players. But to me, the real interesting aspect of it is Cuba had a very similar uh, history of um, uh, in the country um, with uh, slave trade. Uh, many more slaves were brought to Cuba than there were to the U.S. Um, and they had segregated baseball. And the segregated baseball ended in uh, 1900 with the overthrow of Spain because uh, the black population and the white population fought together to overthrow Spain. And because of that shared sacrifice, they made the decision to integrate baseball in 1900. 
And that decision was made a little bit easier when the uh, all black team that entered the league that year actually won the pennant. Mm. And so everybody else immediately uh, (laughs) started signing black players. Mm -hmm. Um, But to me, that was a fascinating aspect of how um, uh, the Negro leagues players, the American players started going to Cuba and eventually throughout the Caribbean. And and for somebody that's, kind of watching this now and listening now was it easier to travel to cuba back then or because obviously in my lifetime i've lived in a in a a large period where people didn't go to cuba they didn't travel to cuba it was easier to go in fact a lot of times people didn't even have passports Mm. passports were kind of a recommendation not a requirement um but yeah, the, the, the Negro Leagues players uh, love going to Cuba and to the Dominican and to uh, Mexico um, because they were treated um, like everyone else. They weren't second class citizens and they really enjoyed it um, in most cases. There are a few cases where it seems like um, uh, they couldn't, uh, they didn't like the food. <laughs> The food was unsettling. Too long. <laughs> That's <laughs> so. Like Satchel Page is probably the best example of that. Mm-hmm. You don't find much of a record of Satchel Page in the Caribbean mm-hmm. um, because it unsettled his stomach. <laughs> wow, wow, that's that's amazing. Let let me let me ask before uh, before we close here. But I, I'm always fascinated about the end of of the Negro Leagues in Chile, and so we know Jackie integrated in '47 players started coming in kind of immediately after that. I think I read um, by basically 54, 55, it was basically over, right? Like the Negro Leagues had kind of just been then hollowed out. Um, what is it about that time period that stands out to you? Like, like, cause it's gotta be almost like, I don't know if it's a, it probably feels like a fast moving ship, but was it a slow moving ship towards the end after Jackie integrated how, how did the owners try to kind of hold on? And there were still some younger players, like I don't know, Willie Mays uh, was was still coming up around that that time. But I'm always fascinated about the end. And when did the owners really realize it was over? Was it when she, kind of Jackie and Larry Doby integrated, or or did they think they could hold on for a little bit longer? Well, I think that they actually realized it was over before Jackie Robinson integrated. Hmm. Um, because one of the last real pressures to, um, of the Negro Leagues was the Mexican Baseball League, um, run by Jorge uh, Pascal, started recruiting Negro Leagues players and white Major League players uh, to play in Mexico. And he was offering them higher salaries, better living conditions. Hmm. Um, they traveled by uh, train and they only played on weekends. It was a great life. And um, Major League Baseball was under threat from Mexico. And at one point, nearly 40% of the Negro Leagues players from the early 1940s were playing in Mexico. Um, And it was a summer league. It wasn't like, you know, the Cuban Winter League. This was a summer league. So they were already under pressure. The end was, uh, you know, the the end was obviously coming. Um, I would think... It was um, a trickle. I think you can see that in the number of people, uh, players that made it into the major leagues. Um, and um, there are generally, um, I, I would say, two um, dates that are generally given for when the Negro Leagues were over, but not quite over. 
So now we generally consider the end of the Negro Leagues, 1948. Mm. And anything beyond that is kind of a diminished league. 1960 marked the end. Uh, there was only between uh, 1948 and 1960, there was only the Negro American League. And by 1960, they had stopped a regular schedule of games. And then barnstorming continued, I think, as late as 1967. But, you know, 1960 to 19, 1948 and 1960 are kind of the two dates, I would say, most commonly given as when the Negro Leagues ended. And what ended barnstorming? Was it just salaries? Because that was uh, reading, reading about the history and knowing about that time period of baseball. That seems so exciting. <laughs> like it seemed like like all star teams going around the country playing games at different stadiums. It just mm-hmm. seemed cool. Like it, it did. I think um, I think that's a good question, and I I think I've never done any research on this, but I think the major thing barnstorming was popular because it was profitable, mm-hmm. and you were bringing entertainment to people who generally didn't see professional entertainment. Uh, I think what really ended it was TV and widespread radio, because now they could see baseball at top Mm -hmm. levels in their home, even if you lived in, I don't know, Kearney, Nebraska, you know, you could watch the New York Yankees. Um, That wasn't the case when barnstorming was in its heyday. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. I think the last major kind of NBA work stoppage lockout, I just remember there were all of these like NBA player led pickup games. So you'd see like, Oh, LeBron and, and Kevin Durant's team is playing James Hart. And I just remember <laughs> thinking like, Oh, that's, it was like modern day barnstorming. They didn't have the league at the time to play. I think, you know, they figured it out, but it was like this really <laughs> cool thing where they just got a bunch of like players and they would go to like, you know, outdoor courts in these large crowds. Uh, and I just, I, I've always read, and it, I think certain players like Bob Feller and those guys made more money in their barnstorming tours than they would on their major league baseball salaries. So it was like something almost out of necessity that they had to do. And mm-hmm. we always mentioned Satchel Page and Satchel Page is like, I mean, if there's a, I mean, he's already in the baseball hall of fame, but if there was a barnstorming hall of fame, (laughs) (laughs) Satchel Page would be the architect, right? The architect of this. So gentlemen, this is phenomenal. This is, it's really, uh, I've already pre-ordered the book. I know people can can pre-order the book and learn more about, uh, about the book. Where at Jay, tell us where kind of everybody can find everything. Okay. You can find it at uh, baseball art llc.com uh that's the website we set up for the uh, book and again it's baseball art singular uh, llc.com and jay this is uh i noticed in some of the bios it says this is the first collection should, should we expect more of, of this type of work as as we move forward i'm hoping um i've got <laughs> several ideas and i'm starting to work on some so <laughs> well <laughs> we're, we're, we're trying to move forward that's that's awesome Greg, I, I follow all of your accounts. So it's like I'm already like stalking. I was for for weeks and months on end. I would like send Greg random tweets and be like, hey, like do a do a Willie Mays doodle on a napkin and just send it to me because he's so, <laughs> so amazing. <laughs> Greg, you've got so much going on. What what's what's new in your world? What's next? What what are you working on? Uh oh, well, I've I've got a couple of 
painting. Oh, no, I shouldn't say a couple. I have a lot of paintings I'm trying to finish. Um, one that I'm currently trying to get done before the holiday is uh, it's a painting of uh, Tim Anderson hitting the home run at the Field of Dreams. How uh, cool. Uh, so I'm trying to finish that up. Uh, and I've got a lot of other like, in addition to like the normal, you know, Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle stuff, I've gotten a lot of interesting uh you know, Negro League and Latin American League commissions lately, where uh, I'm doing this action shot of of Pete Hill for a client that I've this image that I've always wanted to do. Um, doing one of uh, uh, Meito uh, Meito Navarro and Pancho Coimbre for another client, and like that stuff, I really get excited about because I I think it's kind of uh, uh, I was able to do that because of the stuff that I've done with Jay. So it's kind of like, it's almost like a continuation of, of that project for me. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm posting stuff on social kind of every day, you know, whether it's progress on a painting or a commemorating someone's birthday, or if I'm just, you know, just complaining about how tired I am from being a parent or whatever. Um, it's so cool. It's so cool. Yeah. Now, Mark, I, I, I yep. should tell you that I uh, recently uh, responded to a, a, um, a post that Greg made and said, well, you're ready to make 100 more. And he told me to lose my lose his number. So this may be the last time Greg and I talk. <laughs> but that's that's a fascinating question. Out of 239, like how many more can, can how what's the opportunity for more color stories? What's the opportunity for more portraits and more pictures? Because. I mean, I'm assuming you you did everything you could, right? I think we did everything that we could do in that time span. I think, mm -hmm. and correct me if I'm wrong, Jay, but I think if we had another year, I feel like there'd be maybe another 50 guys really? that we would have done. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, because no list that that either of us could have come up with or any historian could have come up with sure. would have been complete. I mean, there, I'm sure that there are people that, you know, that we... Uh, that we did that I painted that people might think, you know, don't deserve to be in there. And, you know, people who they think deserve to be in there who might not have been included. Uh, so every kind of, uh, you know, everyone's different. Uh, yeah. If it were up to me, you know, I would just paint these guys for the rest of my life until they're all done. Uh, but you know. I, I, it's, and it's gotta be a thing where you just kind of keep finding new ones, right? Like someone says, Oh, my, my great uncle played in the Negro leagues. Here's a, you know exactly. what I mean? And it's just like, well, gentlemen, this has been phenomenal. I'm so, so excited uh, about the, the book that is coming out in December, right? It should be, you can pre-order now yeah. and it'll hopefully hit That's us right. before the holiday season. So yeah. perfect timing. Once again, so. everything that uh, you guys are, are doing is exciting and phenomenal. And if there's anything that we over at the Black Baseball Mixtape can do to help, please do not hesitate to ask. So thank you both. Thank you, Mark. Thank Ladies you for having gentlemen. me. Oh, no, it's it's you my pleasure. It, it is Jay and Greg. And uh, this is the Black, Black Baseball Mixtape. This is Mixtape Talk. And until next time, we see it. Yeah. Yo, yo, I'm trying to play leaving. All right. See you at the end, bro.